Hi, I'm Podrick Harrington. If you're enjoying the Open Podcast, subscribe for free and leave your thoughts in a review. Be sure to stay tuned for plenty more new content ahead of the 149th Open this July at Royal St. George's. You're listening to the Open Podcasts. I don't know why, but something inside of me, that that dream was always there, like a a candle that never went out. It was always there, that dream inside of me, that maybe just one day I could have a magic week and I could win the Open. You see, Paul Laurie did it, you know, you... Ben Curtis in 2003, uh, Todd Hamilton. You know, you see guys that you would never expect to win the Open Championship. People crop up and win it, so why couldn't that be Mark Rowe? Match 38 tomorrow. Mark Rowe and Tiger Woods, Sam. What do you think? That'd be awesome. I'll tell you, he'll be up for it, Mark. (laughs) That'd be a great day, wouldn't it? You know, you think about about things that are important in life... um, and golf is just a it's just a game. So many years after, but I still want that. I still want that game of golf with Tiger Woods on that Sunday back there in, in 2003. There are times in any golfer's life, whether they are at the top of the professional game or playing in a local club competition, when things don't quite go to plan. The question always then is, what if? But perhaps no person can more legitimately ask that question in the game of golf than Mark Rowe. One of the game's most colourful characters, Rowe crafted a good career, winning on the European Tour multiple times and reaching the world's top 50. But on one glorious summer's day in 2003, Rowe's time in the spotlight was cut short all too quickly. Yeah, it's a... It's something that uh, will forever be there. It will forever be there and I will forever be thinking, what if? This is Tales of the Open. This is the story of Mark Rowe. Born in 1963 in Sheffield, Rowe was a prodigy in sport from a very young age. But where he spent his practice time, at least initially was not on the golf course. It was, in fact, in the local swimming pool. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was never meant to be a golfer, that's for sure. Early life, I was a gymnast at school. Uh, I was a springboard and highboard diver, which is uh, a sport that I, I, I fell upon by accident. I was at the local library, and uh, there was a book in the sporting section on springboard and highboard diving. And with sort of youthful curiosity at the age of nine, I picked it up and decided I'd take it to the swimming pool and I'd learn to dive from the book. And um, I did. And that threw me into a career of springboard and highboard diving for some three and a half years, where at one point, I think for my age, I was ranked three in, in Britain. And uh, that was my career. That's what I was going to do. I was going to go to the Olympics. I was going to become an international diver. Um, and then I uh, managed to hurt myself on the high board. I was doing a twisting dive off the high board, over-rotated, split my eardrum, and uh, then I couldn't dive for seven months. So uh, my father was a golfer. He was an 18 handicap left-hander. And... He asked me one day if I'd like to go and caddy for him. Um, obviously, seeing I was pretty miserable because I, I couldn't go and do the diving and everything. So, uh, first of all, I said, how much are you going to pay me, Dad, obviously? 
and but but lucky uh, lucky it was a beautiful day and we came up over the top of the hill because the Hallows Golf Club where I grew up playing and where my father played in uh, in Dromfield in Derbyshire was um, was really a beautiful golf course set on top of a hill overlooking Sheffield and overlooking the Derbyshire Dales um, so for someone who had just spent three years training in a in a sort of fluorescent lit uh, chlorine filled pit which is what diving is basically you dive off the board you swim to the side you go up you do it again and you just do that for three or four hours every day this was like a new world this was a world of adventure it was the most beautiful setting and I and I literally caddying for my father that day just thought this is the most beautiful sport this is the most beautiful game I've ever seen and I think he sensed that and he said would you like to try and play and of course the answer was yes, I'd love to, Dad. Uh, so he got me a set of ladies' clubs from the pro shop, second hand, um, and I had some lessons. With the new game now occupying Rose's mind, the young man centred all of his attention on golf and improved quickly, thanks to a work ethic he had already cultivated. Because I think I had that ethic from springboard highboard diving and my training ethic, which was no problem, go for four hours a day, jump in the pool, train, go home, fall asleep, go to school, go back to the pool the next night. I, I had this inbuilt work ethic that a lot of young kids might not have. So for me now, with this newfound passion and not being able to go back to the diving, I just went to the golf course for 10 hours a day, every day in the school holidays, obviously. Um, um, and then it was rapid from that point because I fell in love with it, obviously. I fell in love with playing. I didn't want to go back to the diving because I was so in love with a game of golf. This was the dream. This was this replaced going to the Olympics for the diving. I was going to go and play golf on the telly. I was going to be a tournament pro. And that was it. Former diving champion, Mark, until he had a back injury that put his concentration on the golf. And we're all pleased it did, in a sense. An inspirational experience in 1977 also took Rose's drive to new levels. This was the game for him. Yes, well, well, well. It was absolute drama to the end. I don't think I've seen anything better than that in my life, and neither of you. Absolutely wonderful. The Open Championship my father took me to was the Jewel in the Sun, 1977 at Turnbridge. And I watched, ran, I, I scaled every tree, every piece of scaffolding. I watched Watson and Nicholas on that final day go head to head. For me, the greatest golf I've still ever seen, uh, the greatest experience, the greatest atmosphere, and left that Open Championship thinking, obviously one day I, I will play in the Open Championship. I have to play in the Open Championship one day. Um, so as a 14-year-old boy, having just started the game, been playing about a year, that was like the, the accelerating factor in everything that I did. I, I think from that moment... In 1981, Rowe turned professional and attempted to attain his European tour card through tour school for the following season. However, it wasn't necessarily instant success for the Sheffield native. I'd got down to scratch at the age of 15 and I hadn't, I'll be really honest, I hadn't progressed. 
I played Great Britain and Ireland boys. I played for England boys. I hadn't really progressed. And I thought, well, I'll have a go at the tour school. And it was as simple as that. I thought, I'll go. It was in uh, Portugal. And I remember standing on the range between the Swedish player Anders Forsbrand and Gordon Brand Jr., who sadly passed away, who became a great friend. And I remember standing between them, Anders Forsbrand hitting it 300 yards through the air off the end of the range, and Gordon literally hitting it like a laser and never missing the caddy. And I remember standing there thinking, I'm not good enough. And, and it was a really, really strange feeling. I had plenty of confidence in my ability. I just I thought, I, I, these guys are so much better than me. And, and, I, and, it, and I seemed to get that feeling. So I played, I missed by four shots. And then you are left with the predicament of whether you get your amateur status back or whether you decide to go and be an assistant professional. And I was very, very lucky. I potted around Sheffield for a while um, in, 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 the, in the sort of in nowhere land. And then very kindly, a friend of mine, Nigel Scanlon, who I'd met at the tour school, said to me, um, you can come and you can be assistant pro at my father's golf club, which was down on the Wirral at Arrow Park. That was such a turning point in my golfing career and my golfing life because it meant I had to leave home. So I would drive down there early on a Monday morning. I would work in the, in the shop and I would practice and I'd be around the shop. And I was very lucky because Nigel's father, Clive, always said to me, look, you're a player. You're a good player. I don't want you sitting in here selling golf shoes and tee pegs. He said, I'd like you to go and practice and, 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 get, and be as good as you can, which was amazing. Um, you know, it was great generosity. He was, a, he was a wonderful boss to have as a professional. So Monday to Friday, I would be down there. But being away from home, I had nothing else to do but practice. I practiced and I practiced hard. I got into the local pram scene down there with a first prize of £300. You know, obviously, my sister's wage at the time was £30 a week. And, um, you know, so, so that was the life. Now on a £30 a week wage and still improving in his mission to get to the Tour and the Open Championship, Rowe engaged in some risky business at the Whirl. It didn't pay off immediately with the European Tour card, however, at least not at the second or third time of asking. Hustle a little bit. Believe it or not, I got paid £30 a week, but I played on a Friday afternoon for £50 over nine holes with some of the members. So you had to win, otherwise you were in serious trouble. Um, got a little bit better. Went back to the tour school. But once again, I missed by three shots. So that's number two go at the tour school. So another year of playing prams, another year of being down on the Wirral. Back to the tour school thinking this is my year. Missed by one shot. Three putt in the final green. And at that point, but after two heads, third time, I thought third time, lucky. I went home and I literally threw the golf clubs away for a month. I, I, I mean, I cried my eyes out. I really did. I, I sat there and cried my eyes out. And then after four goes of trying, got to the tour school at Lamanga and qualified in, I think, 19th place. That was 1985, and that's, that was it. I was on the European Tour. Now on the European Tour, after successfully navigating his fourth attempt at Q School, Rowe managed to retain his card with a strong end to his year, before improving rapidly in his second year. After securing a top 40 Order of Merit finish in 1986, Rowe was finding his feet on tour 
before in 1987, ten years on from witnessing the duel in the sun at Turnbury, Rowe qualified for his first ever Open Championship, the 116th Open held at Muirfield. I remember it like yesterday. It was the, the qualifier was at Gullen number one. Uh, obviously, the championship was at Muirfield. And um, one of the funny things, I, I, I remember my caddy, Ian, they used to call him the Brain. Actually, that was his nickname. It, 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 <laughs> for lots of reasons. Anyway, we won't go into that. But I remember we got there, we qualified. And obviously, when you go to the qualifying, you know, you're going to qualify. So you don't book a hotel or, or really have anywhere to stay. So when I qualified, which was just out of this world at my first Open Championship, I would have, wouldn't have mattered where I slept, to be honest with you. But I was lucky. I got a, a, a room last minute at the local pub, the Golf Inn. But Ian McCaddy, Ian the Brain, he wasn't so lucky. Uh, he couldn't find anywhere to stay. So Tuesday, when we got to the, to the golf course, I did ask him, I said, Ian, did, did you manage to get anywhere to stay? And he said, um, he said no, I'm fine. I've, I've got somewhere, thank you. I've got somewhere. He said, I'm sleeping in the starter's hut on Gullen number two. <laughs> so I don't know whether the starter was leaving the door open for him or he figured that they didn't lock it, but he spent the week sleeping in the starter's hut on Gullen number two. Uh, fortunately, I had a bed for the week. But while Rowe's caddy had alternative sleeping arrangements, Rowe was rested and ready for a good week. But before Thursday had even arrived, the then 24-year-old would make his mark on Muirfield, rather literally, in explosive fashion. Me being me, and I had a reputation uh, as a practical joker, uh, and I liked to have fun. It was quite simple. I liked every day to be an adventure, and I liked every day to have something in it. It was a bit wacky. And you've been very lucky today, Des. So can you explain that? Well, I reckon I was born lucky, Mark. I think you were, Des. I was. Congratulations. Thank you very much. For the Wednesday practice round at Muirfield, um, I had some exploding golf balls in my bag, and I played with Rob Lee and Paul Way. Um, and Robert and I decided that we would, well, I, I talked him into it, we would simultaneously and synchronise stand either side of each other and hit exploding balls off the first tee at Muirfield. They were, looked like a golf ball, but obviously when you hit them, they exploded in, in, a, in a puff of chalk. In all honesty, I think they were made of chalk. So Wednesday practice, Rob and I, exploding balls off the first tee. I'd also managed to get some of these brown paper bags off Maxfly because I used the Maxfly ball in those days. So, first of all, we hit exploding balls off the first tee. And then, afterwards, we put the brown paper bags on our heads. Off we went for our Wednesday practice round, not knowing that the group behind was Jack Nicholas, Gary Player, and Arnold Palmer, who came to the first tee and looked at the starter and Jack was there inquiring what these very large white chalk lines were parallel down the first tee at Muirfield. Gary Player was more concerned about the brown paper bags that we were walking down the fairway. As the shadows lengthen across the 18th, Mark Rowe with his unique headgear. Whoa, what was that? It was a chop down with the lofted fairway club. 
and metal wood. And, and we, were, we were obviously oblivious to it. We'd gone off for a practice round. We played the front nine with the brown paper bags on our heads. And then when we got to the ninth, there was a group of Scottish students who were manning the ninth scoreboard. And they had these huge tam hats on. They were ginormous, they were about three feet wide. So we decided we liked those better than the brown paper bags. So we played, we played the back nine with these huge tam on. And the scoreboard guys decided they wanted to come and walk with us because we were having fun. They, they put the brown paper bags on. So we played the back nine. Rob Lee, Paul Way, myself, we all had these bit massive, huge tartan caps on. And walking behind us were these four scoreboard guys with the brown paper bags on their heads. So that was my first practice round at an Open Championship um, uh, that kind of set the tone for the Open Championships going forwards, I think. Yeah. While Rose pre-championship fun drew attention, his golf during the week was most certainly no practical joke. A first round of 74 was followed by a second round of 68. A third round of 72 then followed, and Rowe found himself in an exciting position, playing with a major champion in the final round of the Open. Strong-looking player to me, Mark Rowe is. The last day at Muirfield was an absolute horror. It was a typical Scottish Lynx day. It was raining laterally. Um, and I played with Ben Crenshaw the last round. I remember two things clearly about the day. The first one was my caddy, Ian, who I've referred to earlier, the brain. We got halfway down the first hole and... It is literally cats and dogs. It is, it is hammering down. As the weather deteriorates and Muirfield reveals its claws, the wind blows, the rain falls, and scores rise. I get to my shot and I turn to Ian and I said, Ian, uh, you've got a towel, please. And there was a pause. He said, ah, oh, I've forgotten it. I said, you forgot the towel. So I stood there with the brolly while he literally ran back down the first hole to the locker room to go and get the towel that he'd left. That was the last round of the Open Championship at Muirfield, my first Open Championship. And he's not brought a towel out. Anyway, he came back, he came running back out of breath about 10 minutes later and we, and we played on. I think I shot 72 to, to, around Muirfield that day and for me, that was a, a really good score in those conditions, really, really good. And Ben Crenshaw shot 68. And I can't believe, as well as I felt I played, how easily he made that 68 look. The, the one thing that struck me was I just saw the greatest putting display in, in, in bad weather conditions that I'd ever seen. I mean, he looked like every single putt he looked at he was going to make, as you would probably have to to shoot 68 on a day like that. Um, I remember asking him afterwards, I said, uh, is there anything you could ever let me know about putting, give me a putting tip? And he said, um, he said, I've never really tried to hold any putts. He said, I wasn't trying to hold putts today. He said, I, I basically, I picked my line and set the ball off on the line. And it, I'm always obsessed with pace, he said. And if I've got the pace right, he said, the hole gets in the way of the ball. And uh, I, I never forgot that. I, I always thought it was a fantastic way of looking at putting. The final round of 72 ensured Rowe recorded a tie for 17th in his first Open Championship and set the tone for a number of good years on the European Tour. Finishing inside the top 60 in the order of merit each year from 1986 to 1994, 
Rowe claimed three victories in that time, playing each year in the Open. Because Rowe, with an eagle at the last in the Catalan Open earlier in the season, pipped Montgomery for the title. Two further top 25 finishes would come through that period in golf's original major, including a wonderful final day in 1993 at Royal St. George's. Here's Mark Rowe. He's had a terrific day today. Out in 31, two birdies in the first three holes coming home. Uh, he dropped a stroke at the 15th, now at the 17th, and he's <laughs> nearly popped one in. Time for a Bucks fizz, I think. Now Rowe has this for a par four out of 66. Come on. Yes, well done. Well done. Wonderful start. Four birdies in the first half dozen holes. Did you sort of reappraise your objectives at that point? I certainly did. Um, obviously, my objectives going out was to try and shoot 65 or 64 to get back in the top 15 for next year. Uh, and with that sort of a start, I was even thinking of the course record. <laughs> and what about your own objectives for the rest of the season? You're obviously still hoping of a hopeful of a Ryder Cup place. Yeah, very much so I do. Yeah, I think um, a couple of good weeks now, a win or a second place in the next few weeks and uh, I may well make the team. A fine score on a difficult course further encouraged Rowe that he could achieve something special in golf's original major. If I was in love with the Open Championship from 1977 and all the Open Championships I'd watched before then, before my first Open Championship that I, that I got to play in, that week... Finishing top 20 in the end and feeling so comfortable. Every player says the, the, the dream is to win the Open Championship. And it was my dream from the moment that I went to, to, to Turnbury and I saw Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson play. It was my dream to win the Open Championship. Impossible to say, for somebody that played 524 events, I won three times on the European Tour. I had a good career. I got into the top 50 in the world at one point. I, I consider myself a, a, a decent golfer. But I did think I could win the Open Championship. I, I don't know why. I don't know why, but something inside of me, that, that dream was always there, like a, a, a candle that never went out. It was always there, that dream inside of me, that maybe just one day I could have a magic week and I could win the Open. You see, Paul Laurie did it. You know, you Ben Curtis in 2003, uh, Todd Hamilton. You know, you see guys that you would never expect to win the Open Championship. People crop up and win it. So why couldn't that be Mark Rowe? You can be part of some of golf's most influential fans by joining The One Club for free today. As a member, you'll be the first to secure your place at golf's original major with priority access to tickets and hospitality at future Open Championships including the 150th Open at St Andrews next year. Be part of the Open. Be part of the One Club. Join us today at theopen.com. After reaching a career-high world ranking of 40th in 1994, the year he claimed his third European Tour title, Rose suffered some poor luck. Two freak accidents in 1995, where he was hit on the head by a stray golf ball, and in 1999, where he caught his hand in his dog's collar, left Rowe injured on the sidelines and with dented confidence on both occasions. From 1995 to 2002, 
Roe would only play in two opens in that spell, missing the cut on both occasions after having played the last nine championships in a row. 2003 was not proving much more fruitful for Roe and he was not yet exempt for the Open. But a sudden spark at the Scottish Open looked as if it could change everything. Well, 2003, I wasn't playing great going to the Scottish Open at at Loch Lomond. If you're inside the top ten, I think there was three spots at the time that you could could get in the Open Championship. For me, this, this whole passion for playing in the Open Championship was was so strong that going up to Lot Lomond, uh, that was my only thought in my mind was, I'm now I'm not playing great, but there's, there's some open championship spots here. It's my last chance saloon to get in the open. Obviously, you never want to miss an open championship. And no season was ever complete unless you played in the open championship. So you want to get in. And I, I played okay for three days, steady. But felt like, you know, as a golfer, you kind of know when you just start to trend in the right direction or something, a couple of good shots at the right time, a couple of hole putts at the right time, something feels good. And I went into that final round at Lot Lomond uh, thinking the Open Championship spot, top 10, what do I need to do to get one of those spots? And I'd set a goal in my mind that I need to shoot 64 on the final day to get one of the open spots. So that's all the motivation you need. Go out there, you know, Give it everything you've got and try and shoot your target score. I think I shot 65 uh, final round, which got me inside the top 10. And when I hold out on the 18th, I pretty much knew that I got me a, a, an open championship spot. That is better than the prize money. It is whatever I won at the time, whatever I got for finishing top 10 in the Scottish Open was great. But... The, 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 you know, the, the pot at the end of the rainbow was the Open Championship spot. Simple as that. Another Open Championship, another, another blue enamel badge, blue and silver enamel badge, which are absolute treasures for anybody that, uh, um, that, that plays the game. I've got all of mine in a, in a, in a long frame still. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, to me, they're priceless, you know. Yeah, 65 final round, off to Royal St George's. Having qualified for the 132nd Open Championship, Rowe was feeling confident and ready to take on the test of Royal St. George's. Yes, love the golf course, love, love the golf course and love the way it's playing. And there was another strange thing, and I, I can never explain this to this day even, but when I went on the putting green, the holes looked bigger. It, I don't know why it was, but it was just because the greens were so pristine. But the way they were cut with the beautiful little white edge... And, and, and it just seemed it was the, the, the most perfect amount of white paint above the cup. And I, I don't know, it's bizarre psychological. I mean, why are why we, listen, we know we are complete nutcases to play the game of golf for a living. So whatever you can get out of it, get out of it. And I just thought for some reason, the holes were cut so beautifully, look bigger. And I was putting nicely. And if anything in my whole career, I was a decent ball striker, had a nice short game, but I was a streaky putter. And if I puttered well, I was likely to have a decent week. And that could apply to most people, but uh, that's how I felt anyway. So for some strange reason, I thought, I just liked the look of everything, the course and the, the way the cups were cut. But while Roe was feeling good, his first round score of 77 didn't seem on the cards. But I didn't play. I didn't play anything like 77. I came off the golf course and I thought, how 
have I shot 77? But hitting it that well and, and playing that well, I just, it one of those sort of days where you think, that's the worst I could have possibly got out of that round of golf. You, you, you sign for the score and you think, that, that is the worst I could have been. I mean, it couldn't have been one shot worse. So I just looked, I thought, okay, so you shot 77, but tomorrow, you know, like could be could be really good the way you, you're swinging and playing. And it, and it was. It was indeed. The start to his second day was on the opposite end of the spectrum. I knew I had to play okay to make the cut. Um, so that's the first objective. You're not. I mean, at that point, don't don't think I'm thinking about you know <laughs> winning the Open Championship because that would be lunacy. Now I've got to just try and make the cut, play the weekend, and play four days, which is which is going to be great if you can do that. And I set off uh, second round, three, three, three. Here's Mark Rowe for eagle on the fourth. Three. A good week's Mark Rowe. Never since he got a good caddy on the bag. Oh, what an eagle. <laughs> He's four and dead through four today. He's had three at every hole. Fantastic start. Who said the course is hard? Here's Mark Rowe. Four under after four today. My reference to his playing better because he has a good caddy. Beautiful shot, Mark. Is, uh, he's been using my caddy for the last two weeks as I've been injured, and he's finished 16th and 8th. And now he's lying in the top 10 of the Open. You might never see him again, your man, Sam. I, I, I wouldn't come back if I was him. And Mark Rowe for birdie at five. Three. This to be five under for the day. Started with five threes. Five threes. What an opening. A few hours. And the sixth is a par three. Three. And Mark Rowe has made a three on the sixth for his sixth consecutive three. What a start from Mark. 3-3-3. And I'm thinking this might just be the best start in open history. Is Mark Rowe, incredibly enough, for his seventh consecutive three and for an eagle. Can anybody have ever started a round at the open? I mean, at this point, I mean, I'm, my head's completely gone. I'm not concentrating on what I should be concentrating on. I'm now starting to think, I've just had six threes in a row to start to start around in the Open Championship. And um, so obviously I get up to the green, I missed the putt. He's given it a waft with a long putter there. It's tracking. Oh, great try. Sit. Excellent putt from Mark Rowe. He's broken his run of threes with a birdie. <laughs> messed his card up with a four. <laughs> six threes. And followed that with a birdie four now. That is fun. Fantastic, really. So he at level par is, is sharing second place in the championship. And managed from that point to limp home. And I mean limp home after this unbelievable start of six threes in a row. Mark Rowe at 13. Ooh. Oh, that's not pretty. Well, for a man who... Uh was out of the game for ages walk, after an injury sustained walking his dog. This rough could put him out of the game permanently. I limp home in 70. So I, I started thinking about seven threes in a row and maybe I could make another three. So my goodness me, it could have been, I mean, this is something like, I'm actually, you can imagine my brain. It was going a million miles an hour. I thought, okay, hang on, what's, 
Three nines, that's 27. Yeah, you know, uh, that's what I did. So anyway, I limped home in 70, but it was a good score. And it put me in a much better position. I made the cut comfortably. It put me in, in a nice spot going into the weekend. After beginning with six straight threes, Rowe's round of 70 may have left the Sheffield native feeling a little disappointed. But a five-over par total put the Englishman just six strokes off Davis Love III's lead and three strokes off the top ten. Heading into Saturday, Rowe knew something special was brewing. What he didn't know, however, was that it would be one of the most topsy-turvy days of his life. I was starting to feel something special. The way I looked at the holes, the way I was starting to hold putts, the way I had this feeling that the holes looked bigger than normal, which we know is absolute madness, but everything I've ever done in my golfing career was madness. So I thought, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be, it's going to be, this is going to be a special day. Saturday's going to be a special day. A very good morning to you on a truly gorgeous summer's day here at the Royal St. George's Golf Club in Sandwich for today's third round of the 132nd Open Championship. Yes, you need the umbrella today, but not to keep the rain off. Keep yourself cool. I was playing with Jesper Parnovic, who possibly could compete with me for eccentricity. Um, he was the madcap Swede, Jesper. Practice went well, putting went well, walked up to the first tee to see Ivor Robson, the, the starter, the legendary starter, Ivor Robson. And uh, he always had a nice word for everybody, Ivor. And so I got up onto the tee, um, Ivor gave him a scorecard, absolutely as he should do. Um, that was always, always the case, he gave you your own scorecard and then you exchanged it with your, with your playing partner. I've been on the putting green with Jesper. And then at the last minute, he decided that he needed to go to find the nearest portaloo. Um, he was obviously nervous playing with me. So he disappeared off to the nearest portaloo. I walked to the tee, I got my scorecard, and I'm looking at my watch thinking, he's taking his time. Um, and he literally was taking his time. And then I'm looking at my watch thinking, I said to Ivor, how long we got? He said, two minutes. And, and yes, we're still not on the tee. But all of a sudden, he kind of comes around the corner at a canter, running up. And in, the, in this whole process of, of thinking he might be late or he's going to be very tight for, for time and I don't want him to feel rushed, I stuffed my scorecard in my ball pocket. And Ivor gave him his scorecard, as Ivor should. And literally then it was 20 seconds T announcement. I hit off, he hits off and thought nothing more of it. After getting underway, Rose's pre-round feelings were affirmed, making the turn under par and just a handful of shots out of the lead. The, the day developed. The, the day developed in the most amazing way for me, and ironically not for, for Jesper. Um, he had an absolute shocker, and I was, I was on cruise control and starting to feel very, very calm and, and very confident, almost surreally so. Heading into the back nine, Rowe was under par for his day. But on the tenth hole, a monstrous birdie putt brought Rowe closer to the lead. This is Mark Rowe at the tenth. This for a birdie. Long uphill putt. A familiar whoosh with the long putter and walk after it. Oh, beautiful, Rowe. 
He uses it well, doesn't he? But he has an unusual style. Nearly beat the ball to the hole. <laughs> has an unusual style with that putter where he really lets the head flow. It certainly does. It's, so there's more body movement on his putts than on his normal swing. Before a remarkable piece of magic on the 13th. Mark Rowe on the 13th. I hold my second shot with a sand wedge. He's done an awful lot of good stuff this week. One bouncing in. Looked a good swing. Oh my goodness. Well, that was terrible luck. Brilliant. He shot 64 on Sunday at Loch Lomond to get into the championship, but on Saturday evening he caught a 10 pound trout. And he said, well, that was more fun than the 64, but it can't be more fun than what he's going through here. And I looked across at the leaderboard, and at that point, I was either leading or, 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 or tied for the lead. And I, and I finished the round off well, strongly. Hit good shots coming in. And again, had this real feeling uh, of calm. Now, right in the thick of the championship, solid pars on the next four holes would follow, including a marvellous two-pot on the 17th. Smart row at 17. Tricky one. The hard thing here is the speed. He really has an exaggerated follow-through with this long putter. I kind of wafts at it, doesn't he, when it goes through. Oh, that was a good stroke. Steady, steady. Hit it. Just a fraction firm. With a nice six-footer down the hill there. Oh. Here we go, Mark Rowe at 17. Very important. He's watching it. Yes, good lad, Roy. Go on, my son. Still four under at the last. And no, you cannot keep my caddy, Roy. I don't care if he's winning the championship. Ducati would probably retire if he wins the championship. Match 38 tomorrow. Mark Rowan, Tiger Woods, Sam, what do you think? That'd be Maybe. awesome, I'll tell you, he'll be up for it, Mark. <laughs> That'd be a great day, wouldn't it? Heading up the 18th hole and finding the green in regulation, Rowe had a chance to shoot 66, exactly 10 years and one day after shooting the same score around Sandwich in 1993. He won't stop. He'll be a nervous ball of energy all night, won't he? No finer feeling than walking up there. The wonderful response from the crowd. Listen to this. Best walk in golf, isn't it? For a round of 66, Mark Rowe, let's see him wheel this long putter one more time. Has he hit it? Great effort, Rowe. Well, round of 67, and that will give Rowe. He's won over for the championship, and he will be leading the clubhouse. That was for you, Sam. Yeah, steady, steady, buddy. Outward half of 35. Inward 32, and Rowie is leader in the clubhouse. There he is. He's done all the hard work. Now all the other players out there have got the rest in front of them. He's going to be leader in the clubhouse for quite a while, too. 
rolled it up to the whole side, 67. And at that point, looking up at the leaderboard, there's Mark Rowe's name in the in the top few players on the leaderboard at the 18th. So I blew kisses to the crowd and walked off. Rowe was in dreamland, and the 307th ranked player in the world was right in the heart of contention, with the late starters due to finish out their rounds in the coming hours. But while Rowe had shot a 67, that was not the score he signed for. So we, we, we leave the 18th green, we go to the scorer's hut. Um, always the same process in the scorer's hut, and I always had the same process. And sitting down, obviously, I, I'm always careful. Uh, I'd never want to make a mistake with a scorecard, particularly on a, on, on a, on a great day. But I'm, I was always meticulous anyway. I checked off my scores with the lady scorer who'd walked round with us. Uh, I actually called them out to her, ticked them off. And then went through in my mind again, almost every shot you do, you do that as a player, you recount every shot and you and, and, and tick them off again. My recollection was that we're, there was three scoring officials in the cabin and, and you pass the score, they check it and they pass it down and they check it. Um, so it goes from one RNA official to another RNA official and at the very end, the last gentleman checks the scorecard and he announces 35, 32, Mr. Rowe, congratulations, a round of 67, you're free to go. I'm having words like they were yesterday. That's it, the process is done. Leave the cabin. Obviously at this point now, I'm right in the thick of things, I'm right in contention for the Open Championship. So there's TV interviews to do, there's the BBC, there's American networks. So I go through the whole process on cloud nine, on cloud nine. I just shot 67, which was the best round of the Open Championship. In fact, it wasn't beaten all week by anybody. I do all of the TV interviews and I see RNA official stood just off to the right hand side. He said, uh, Mark, he said, um, can you come back to the scorer's hut, please? Um, there's a problem. Well, we hear, uh, we hear um, a, a rumour, unsubstantiated, that Mark Rowe may be disqualified, but that would uh, be a very sad happening if true. So I am walking back to the scorer's hut. And I'm thinking, I've made a mistake on Jesper's card because it was 81. I mean, he had a lot of shots that day, a lot. And I'm thinking, I've obviously put a wrong score in there somewhere or, or, or and I'm going to have to apologise. And that's my thought in my head was, I thought I've made a mistake on Jesper's card. So I walk in and there is Jesper in the scorer's hut. And I look at him. And the first thing I say to him, I said, did I make a mistake on your scorecard, Jasper? And he said, no, uh, Roe, he said, I'm really sorry, but it's worse than that. And I'm thinking, well, hang on, what, what can be worse? <laughs> I remember thinking, what, what can be worse than that? Because I've checked my scorecard. I've double-checked it. I've checked it with the lady score. I've checked it with the first RNA official. I've checked it with the second RNA official. I've gone through it. I've checked it. I know it's perfect. I know the numbers are perfect. And at that moment, the two scorecards are sitting on the table. And I look down at them. And you know when you, you go cold, I just went cold. I looked at it and I thought, 
I spotted it straight away. In a millisecond, I spotted it. The scores are on the wrong scorecards. And from the very first moment on the first tee, where Jesper had rushed on to the tee, we hadn't swapped scorecards. And I had put the scores on the wrong card. And I hadn't noticed. And Jesper hadn't noticed. And neither had the first scoring official. And neither had the second scoring official. Unbelievably, in that whole process, no one had noticed that the scores were on the wrong cards. So I had signed for an 81. And Jesper had signed for a 67. Which was quite an upgrade on the way he played. The self-regulating nature of golf leaves players in charge of their own scorecards and the penalty for signing for a lower score than actually taken on any individual hole is disqualification. Not exchanging scorecards on the first tee and the failure of both players and markers in the scorer's hut to spot the discrepancy meant that both Jesper Parnovic and the title-contending Mark Rowe were disqualified. Um, and obviously the, the, the rules official there and the chief, the chief rules official, the RNA was there, um, looked at me and he said, I, I, he said, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. He said, I, he said, I really am. He said, I, 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 I don't, he said, I can't really comprehend the situation. He said, and I'm so sorry. I said, look, I said, I know the rules of golf. I know that I've signed for the wrong score. And I know I'm disqualified. So I said, I appreciate, you know, what you're saying, but I, but I, I play golf by the rules I, I, and that's it. And, and, and at that, that moment, there's, you're almost in shock. I mean, I was in shock. I, I just thought, how... How can I have done, how can this have happened? How can it have happened on what is in essence the best day of my golfing life? I mean, I've just put myself right to the forefront of the Open Championship, my favourite event in the world, and and I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking at these scorecards and I'm in absolute disbelief. But I know the rules. I know the rules and. Um, I have to leave the scorer's hut. Uh, I have to go back out now and repeat literally the whole round of interviews. That was undoubtedly, I, as I walked out, and I just remember thinking, you know, there's only one thing I can do. I've got to handle this in a way that my father would have been proud of me because that mattered. My father being proud of me mattered. So I could have kicked and screamed. I could have made a scene, but it's not worth it. It's not worth it, you know. Um, the rules are there to protect the game. It's the greatest game in the world because of the rules that are in place to protect the game. For 99% for of the time, the game polices itself and it's an incredibly honest and honourable game. So, yeah, I had to go through the whole process again and that was a pretty brutal sort of 40, 45 minutes. After Rowe had signed for his score and left the recorder's hut, it was discovered that he had inadvertently marked his own card. Parnovic had done the same, 
and under the rules of the game, they were disqualified. In all honesty, you are responsible for your own scorecard, and I'm the only person to blame. The rules are there to protect the game of golf, and uh, you know that's why we play the game, because it's such an honest uh, game and it has so much integrity. If I go home and see my children tonight, believe me, I'll be a little bit upset, but this is not that important. This type of issue strikes at the very heart of the game. It strikes at the heart of golf being a self-regulating game. Uh, and because of that, um, players have to uh, record their scorecards accurately. And, and I'm afraid if there are errors of this kind, uh, the results can be very severe. And then once all of that's done, you walk back to the car and you're just left with a kind of, I just kind of <laughs> left with a, a lonely feeling. It was a strange feeling and I just needed to get home. I just needed to get home. Go back to the hotel, pack my bags, um, put my stuff in the case, drive home and in all honesty, get drunk. What's the best way of doing this? So I picked up a bottle of champagne on the way home. The, the idiocy of it, I, I don't know when I... But it, 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 it really was just an empty feeling. Just an empty feeling. And I went home and I, I don't remember going to bed and I don't really remember sleeping. Um, and I remember getting up the next day and thinking, I don't want to watch, I don't want to watch the Open Championship. I really don't. But of course I love the Open Championship. <laughs> I love the Open Championship. And I, and I, I had to watch, I had to watch. Um, to see a one. Rowe handled the situation with remarkable grace, but his fairy tale performance in the 2003 Open came to the most unfortunate and sad ending, depriving the Englishman of a final round pairing in the penultimate group on Sunday, sitting just two shots off the lead with none other than Tiger Woods. Uh, I would have played with Tiger Woods that Sunday. That's where my score sat. Um, uh, that would have been something to to tell the kids that you play with Tiger Woods at a Open Championship on the Sunday. And um, I watched it all unfold, and I watched Thomas throw away his chance of being Open Champion with his bunker shot at the 16th. And uh, you know, the strangest thing was I, I know Thomas really well, and Thomas is a is a is a is a good friend, and I and I was actually sitting there feeling so deeply for Thomas not winning, Thomas Bjorn, of course, for not winning the Open Championship, a feeling for him, uh, what happened at the 16th. Thomas Bjorn on 16, second shot. Get up, get up. Oh, no, no, not in his footprint. Get up. Well, this is uh, this is very sad indeed. Trying to play it perhaps too too fancy, and that could have ended up in in his own footprints. And when it was done, and Ben had won, and the, the trophy had been presented, the winner of the gold medal and the champion golfer for the year is Ben Curtis. I went upstairs and I cried my eyes out. 
for a lost opportunity. That was all just for a lost opportunity, for something that I've dreamt of my whole life, for something that meant so much to me, an opportunity. I might have shot 78 playing alongside Tiger Woods. I might have shot 81 like Jesper did. You know what? Who knows what Mark Rowe would have shot on that Sunday? Who believes truthfully that Mark Rowe could have won the Open Championship? I just know that something special happened on the Saturday. I felt so calm and so good in that situation. And, and my round of 67 was a, a special round. And I have to believe that you know, I could have done that again. I think I would have needed a 69 to win the Open Championship or 70 to win the Open Championship on the Sunday. But it really did feel deprived of, of that opportunity. Um, and that's the only thing that, 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 that when I reflect on it, I still feel such a massive emotion about. Um, not the way I handled it, handled it the way I wanted to, handled it the way I was, I was proud of the way I handled it. But looking back, that's the only regret in my entire career. My only real regret. I look back and I just regret I hadn't that opportunity on that Sunday to, to go out and play and have a chance of winning the Open Championship. That is my 2003 Open story. Rowan Parnovic's situation in 2003 resulted in a change in policy surrounding Rule 6-6D, now Rule 3-3B, ensuring that should players write their scores on the wrong scorecards, the names on the top of the cards would be changed by the committee and the players in question would not be disqualified. Yet, whilst Rowe's misfortune meant that failure to exchange scorecards would not result in a breach of the rules in future, it came as but small comfort to him. Well, a few years later, David Rickman from the RNA called me and he said that we changed the rule. Uh, that will never happen to anybody again. Uh, he said part and parcel of, of, uh, of the way you handled it and, and, and the way that you, you, you took the rule in was a reason why we, we wanted to change it so nobody went through that again, which was a, a very nice thing to say. Um, there was a big outpouring at the time, um, from a lot of people that said that I should have been reinstated on the Sunday, that they should have, that's exactly what they should have done. They should have put the line through the scorecards. But the truth of it was, because of the way that I was brought up, because of the way my father was about the rules of golf, because of the way he was about the spirit of the game and the, play, uh, the game always being played in the right spirit, if they had suggested to me that they do that, I couldn't have played. I couldn't have got on that first tee. I couldn't have got on the first tee at Royal St. George's on that Sunday and played knowing that I'd actually made a mistake and I had broken a rule, but the RNA had, had, had let me play. I couldn't have done it. It wasn't in my nature to do that. Royal St. George's in 2003 was Rowe's 12th and final ever appearance in the Open Championship. The Englishman would play three more years on the European Tour before eventually retiring from professional golf in 2006 aged 43. In later life, Rowe became a commentator for Sky Sports, where he still works, and a highly successful short game coach with his students, including Francesco Molinari, the champion golfer of the year in 2018. Alongside wanting to go into the media, um, Lee Westwood had asked me to have a look at his chipping. 
Um, it started with just a, a, a joke more than anything, you know, because I'd known Lee since he was a, a, a young a young boy. Um, and I think I, I sort of said to him, I said to him, you know, you, you, you're playing great, but your chipping's crap, but it always has been. So, and he said to me, well, look, he said, if you, you're not doing anything now other than, you know, chatting on television and talking rubbish, he said, why don't you try and help me with my chipping? And um, what I said clicked. Something, something between us clicked and he started playing a lot better. And it was a year and, year and a half, something like that. And obviously other players saw that. Other players saw me working with Lee. Other players asked me. I moved on and, 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 it, and it snowballed incredibly quickly. I had great success with Ross Fisher for, for four or five years. I had Francesco Molinari for, for four years. Uh, I worked with Justin Rose for a, for a season and a half. So I had great players coming to me. Just absolutely loved it. I mean, you know, so passionate about short game. It was something I was good at. I was a good bunker player. Um, I knew what I was doing and it felt, for me, it was the easiest thing in the world to teach. It was both a combination of, 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 of good technique, obviously you've got to have great technique, but visualisation and also demonstration. I still had a good short game. I was still able to chip against them, play with them, have games against them. So this, like the perfect storm in a way for coaching of something you're incredibly passionate about, something that you understand inside and out, something that I found very easy to communicate. So yeah, that's a, I'm, I'm really lucky to have found coaching after golf, really lucky and obviously... As I say, the, the, the sky job is uh, is something that uh, I adore doing because I've, I've got an opinion. I like having an opinion. I like talking about golf. I love, as you, uh, as I said to you, as you can tell from this podcast, I like talking about golf. I love golf. I love talking about golf. While Mark Rowe's life has been one of adventure and his golfing career a fun roller coaster ride through playing, coaching and broadcasting, very few, if any, could ever empathise with his situation in 2003 at the Open. But the colourful Englishman, 18 years on from one of the best days of his life, turned into one of the worst, has dealt with his misfortune at Royal St George's admirably. Still, it is impossible to avoid the question that will live with him forever. What if? There's kind of a theme runs through all of these stories right back to Muirfield in 87 and my first Open Championship um, and even before that going with my father it's, it's just that absolute uh, it's the greatest championship in the world it's the most historically important championship in the world there is no doubt if you had the green jacket for me and you had the, the Wanamaker trophy you had the US Open trophy there and you had the Claret Jug it's like the claret jug is, is, is the holy grail. And it's as simple as that. I actually think differently. I actually think now. I, I still want that. I still want it. I still want that final round. I still want that. I want to get my clubs and go and play. Please. I never play with Tiger Woods. You know, and this is, uh, this is recorded on a day when we just found out that Tiger's had a, an awful car crash. So... Um, you know, you think about uh, think about things that are important in life, um, and golf is just a it's just a game. Um, so many years after, but I still want that. I still want that game of golf with Tiger Woods on that Sunday back there in, in 2003. Yeah, it's a 
it's something that uh, will forever be there. It will forever be there and I will forever be thinking, what if? With thanks to Mark Rowe. Narrated by me, Shane O'Donoghue. Written, produced and edited by Chris Lewis. Executive produced by Paul Sutcliffe. As well as live leaderboards, tea times, video and radio during the Open Championship, you can enjoy historical and new content every day of the year with the Open app. Download for free on iPhone or Android. This has been an original audio production from The Open.